For KLSU, I'm Michael Cross. It's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The State Corporation Commission gave Oklahoma Natural Gas the thumbs up to raise the bills of its customers. After incurring costs from last February's ice storms and frigid cold, bills could increase to just under $8 a month or nearly $100 a year for the next 25 years. Neva, what are your thoughts on this rate hike? Well, first of all, let's 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 think about it in terms of what could have happened. I mean, the the three corporation commissioners uh, in their vote, I mean, could could have gone the direction of a single month payment of approximately thirteen hundred and sixty three dollars per uh, per residence, you know, the, the folks or. $15.32 a month over this 25 years, or what could be the $7.82 a month over the next 25 years, assuming that they can, you know, withstand litigation over the, uh, uh, over the way that was structured and the bonds that would be let. So, I mean, bottom line is it was a historic ice storm, 10 days, uh, in order to keep uh, folks with um, um, uh, having their homes heated, having businesses heated, and to be able to uh, to deal with all of this, I mean, we had an unusual situation. The legislature came in, made um, made the um, uh, ability for them to be able to bond this a, a possibility. And you have your critics. I mean, you had two two votes for. Uh, on the uh, on on the commission, Dana Murphy and Todd Hyatt, and you had Bob Anthony as a, as a strong no, and and voiced uh, real criticism about the whole process, and uh, and then you had other groups, outside groups weighing in, the AARP and others that we would expect that would advocate for their you know for their constituency, but who also said that they were they were pleased that there wasn't the um, the exit fee, that they didn't vote for that, which could have been a hardship. So, you know, we can talk about, we can talk about uh, all of this, but when, you know, really, I think uh, Commissioner Hyatt kind of said it best. He said, you know, we have to understand that under state law, uh, you know, regulated utilities can pass fuel costs on to the consumer. Those bills have to be paid somehow. And so I think what they were trying to come up with is the best possible solution out of what could have been a lot of bad options uh, initially on the table. Ryan. Yeah, I think that there are there are three parts to this. I mean, the first is, and Neva mentioned one of them, is that the Corporation Commission didn't even vote uh, to approve or disapprove. They just didn't even consider this exit fee um, that ONG had initially put forward. And that exit fee was uh, north of $700. And that would have been just a, a fee that any individual homeowner or, or ratepayer in Oklahoma would have had to pay if they'd converted their house from uh, natural gas to all electric. Now that's just kind of absurd on its face. You know, that, that, that some uh, monopoly, uh, utility monopoly would use their power like that to punish consumers for making the best decision that's right for their household. Um, so everybody should be grateful that that didn't even move forward. That's not on the table anymore. And the second thing, and Neva mentioned this as well, is the historic legislation that was passed last year. Senator James Lee Wright, um, you know, put together uh, and, and, and really championed a, a very complicated and difficult piece of legislation and got it across the finish line and got it to the governor's desk. And by doing so, uh, insulated ratepayers from enormous electric bills or enormous utility bills mm -hmm. that they uh, took on during that historic ice storm. So, you know, just 
big congratulations and thanks to Senator Lee Wright and the other folks that made that possible. Uh, but then I also agree with Commissioner Anthony here that when the commission is at this point now where they're determining how much that rate hike should be to cover these bonds, that that data should be transparent, that there should be information that Oklahomans uh, and through their elected officials in the Corporation Commission should be able to consider. Yeah, you know, if if this was just truly a historic storm and there, everybody did everything that they could have done uh, to keep rate or to keep cost low uh, and to be prepared for the storm and weather the storm, um, then great. But if there, as Commissioner Anthony said, if if people acted imprudently, uh, then he says that the utility shareholders uh, should share in a portion of these extraordinary costs. And so maybe that rate hike wouldn't be, you know, upwards of $7 a month. Maybe it would be five. Who knows? But I think the data transparency here uh, would, would make this decision go down a lot better with Oklahomans. But at the end of the day, whether it's $5 or $7, um, I think that we can all be grateful that we're not looking at $1,000 uh, monthly bills that we're going to be having to pay as a result of that storm. Well, and I think the other thing is Commissioner Anthony had one point of view and, and Commissioner Murphy expressed almost a diametrically opposite point of view when she said that there had been exhaustive review of the uh, of the proposals, the test, there had been testimony, evidence presented, and that they made these decisions, uh, you know, based on, you know, based on a multitude of factors. So again, it's, it's this give and take. Oftentimes we see, and we have three duly elected statewide office holders as corporation commissioners who ultimately have to make that decision and make that vote on how this goes down. So the other side of this that we didn't talk about is the fact that much of this is still waiting in the courtroom for decisions. I mean, we have these uh, the kind of the, the stacked up cases, the OG&E cases, now ONG. I mean, these cases that uh, continue to be brought forward and whether or not the uh, how quickly the court uh, addresses these and whether or not there are some uh, consequences that aren't anticipated out of all of that, we'll just have to wait and see. And I, I just want to say I misspoke. Uh, you know, the, the news reports say that the Corporation Commission rejected that exit fee. Uh, I don't know if they if they just didn't hear it or if there was an up or down vote on it. Right. Uh, but but it, that exit fee, regardless, uh, is, isn't something that we're, we're looking at experiencing in Oklahoma right now. The U.S. Supreme Court is upholding its decision on McGirt versus Oklahoma ruling tribal reservations were never disestablished. The justices have declined 32 Oklahoma petitions to overrule it, but could still consider motive motions to revive the order giving jurisdiction to the federal government and tribal courts over crimes committed on native land or against indigenous individuals. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this decision? I think that this is just another signal, if, if the governor and the attorney general will take it, another signal that the court isn't going to overturn McGirt. Uh, the only case that the court is going to hear that's McGirt related this year has to, deal, has to do with whether or not the state can have concurrent jurisdiction over non-native individuals that commit crimes on reservation land against uh, um, tribal uh, citizens. So you know, they're going to they're going to look at that. The court will look at that and we'll, we'll get a I'm sure we'll get a uh, an opinion on whether or not that concurrent uh, jurisdiction exists. I don't think that it does. Um, I think that most tribal governments in Oklahoma, if not all tribal governments, dispute that that current concurrent uh, jurisdiction uh, would exist, especially after McGirt. But the big story here is the dozens of cases that the state has filed in an effort to overturn McGirt yet again get set aside. Um, the. Um, 
you know, the, the state's legal position, you know, seems to just, and has been even since uh, when it was arguing McGirt was, well, we've always done it that way. Uh, and the, the justices just don't think that that supersedes the treaties that the United States government executed with sovereign nations, sovereign tribal nations. Uh, so you know, to me, one of the most interesting things that's come out of all of this is that Congressman Cole, who in, uh, in Washington, D.C., has been trying uh, to come up with a federal response that would be a collaborative effort between tribal governments and the states. I mean, he's he really came out in a in a Norman transcript piece, um, and you know I think that you know you're looking back at you know what he said on that in uh, you know uh, a year ago, uh, and that that Norman transcript piece. I, I found that and thought, boy, this just makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, Congressman Cole is you know putting out a roadmap for the governor uh, and for the state to say, lay down the lawsuits, uh, we're, we're ready to move forward. And let's, you know, the solutions to the extent that there are challenges and issues that are left unresolved with McGirt, the solution is to sit down at the state level, the federal level and the tribal level and negotiate uh, a, a, a path forward. And I think that as Congressman Cole has said throughout his entire career in Congress, uh, if when the tribes and the states are working together, we can really accomplish great things. But when we're at war with, uh, when the state of Oklahoma is at war with tribal governments, then we all lose. And uh, I think that the governor would do well to listen and heed the words of his uh, fellow member of uh, the Republican Party, Congressman Cole, sit down with the tribes, recognize that the litigation is going nowhere, and let's begin this process of, of working together and moving uh, together as a state. Neva. Well, I think uh, the fact that that uh, the Oklahoma officials had really um, bombarded the court with, I think, 40 plus petitions, uh, you know, that uh, that they wound up only having one that was going to be heard by the Supreme Court. I mean, clearly that kind of sets the stage. I thought it was fascinating, though, that the attorney general, apparently after the high court rejected all of those petitions, but one had a phone conversation. It was reported that uh, with the uh, 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 with the uh, tribal leaders and specifically with their acting attorney general. And basically out of that uh, came came kind of this um, almost kumbaya of uh, believing that there was meaningful and a good faith attempt and seemed to be kind of a different tone um, in in kind of the olive branch of developing a more uh, open you know relationship and in, in going forward so whether or not that was just uh, one overture or whether that is a kind of a change in course in terms of maybe trying to get a little more movement kind of seeing where the court now seems to be moving itself I think that uh, I think that's something that's going to be very interesting to watch well you know congressman Cole um you know, he's got legislation in Congress that that, it, you know, seeks to deal with this. I mean, I think that the, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on it. I know that the, uh, at least from Congressman Cole's standpoint, he's reported that he doesn't believe that it can get out of committee in its current form. Um, but I think that if um, if if the state would just take that path of, of, of working with Congressman Cole, I know that Governor Stitt's uh, team has said that they don't like that legislation, that they've got serious concerns about that legislation, we'll sit down with them. Uh, I think that being adversarial 100% of the time is really getting us nowhere uh, in, in dealing with these issues that are post-McGirt and pre-McGirt and tribal and state relations. 
Well, I think the other thing is looking from a congressional standpoint with the 22 elections coming up and the fact that uh, many people believe that there's a reasonable, uh, reasonable expectation Republicans could take over both the House and the Senate, uh, that would change the whole landscape in terms of these conversations moving forward post the 22 elections. And um, and I think, you know, certainly Congressman Cole in, in the House and, and other and other uh, members of the delegation would be well positioned to kind of move some of these big question conversations to the forefront and, um, you know, might be a totally different uh, totally different uh, tone and a totally different operation, you know, if uh, if in fact we did see leadership change like that in Washington. Governor Sid is threatening tribal leaders of a lawsuit over money he says is owed to the state over hunting and fishing licenses. The governor says the state lost uh, out on around $17 million in dealing with compacts. Eva, do you think this will be heading to court? I don't know. I mean, the compacts expired December 31st. It kind of sounds like the, the, the thing we talked about so many times about the compacts. Um, we've got a situation where this, this particular agreement between the state and the tribes uh, took place uh, and was negotiated by then Governor Fallon back in 2015 and 2016. Um, the deals were made. Uh, they have moved forward. And now the governor um, is, is basically taking issue and saying, we may, not, uh, we, may, we may not put up with this and we may go to court and try to really change it. So um, I think it remains to be seen whether it's to, to try to push push the conversation back to the table or whether in fact those decisions have been made and they're just going to move forward with them at some point in the very near future. Ryan. Well, I think that, you know, and I, and I, uh, and I'll mention Congressman Cole again, because I think that he is just spot on in this, you know, that continued adversarial posturing from the governor's office, uh, continued litigation. Um, even, even if you think that you might win this one, which they probably won't, um, all that does is it stalls and makes it much more difficult for the state of Oklahoma through Governor Stitt and his team to sit down and have meaningful, productive conversations with our sovereign nations uh, so that you know, we, can, we can be good partners and neighbors. Uh, and at the same time, respect the, you know, the very basic principles of, of sovereignty you know, and, and understanding the different uh, roles of these different governments uh, in the geography that we all call Oklahoma. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, um, again, I mean, we, we got to this point where there's even talk of litigation because of a, a very adversarial position from, uh, I think it was the lieutenant governor, whenever they, I think that he was the one, Neva, am I right about that? Was he the one that made that announcement about raising the fee all the way up? Mm -hmm. um, I that's correct. And, and so I think that, you know, we, we start off with these you know, very adversarial positions that make it difficult to negotiate in good faith. And well, so yeah, you're right. I mean, and here's the other thing. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, the governor was in Enid at a civic uh, uh, group uh, speaking, and he basically made the comment that was reported uh, words to the effect that tribal citizens would be arrested and fined for hunting without a license. So, I mean, that's pretty escalated uh, rhetoric, uh, whether it's in a, um, a political speech or whether it's in a civic club or wherever the, the setting was. Um, and so I think, again, I mean, we've got this real hard divide that's, 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 on, 
that's right in front of us. And I think with the legislators getting ready to come back into session, I think these are the kind of conversations that they would like to see some resolution to rather than have it just continue to spill over into the work that they'll be tasked to do uh, starting the first week in February. Well, and then spill over into the election cycle. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, and that's where, unfortunately, I think that that's where we're going to see the most conversation about this is where, you know, communication and negotiations break down between state and tribal leaders. And we see the tribal government spending millions of dollars uh, trying to influence the outcome of elections so that hopefully, uh, in their their viewpoint, they have somebody in the governor's office that will negotiate with them in good faith. And, you know, I think all of that remains to be seen, but, if we don't have some resolution on this, uh, I think we can expect a lot of campaign activity around this uh, in the summer and fall. District three Congressman Frank Lucas is facing a primary opponent from a current state lawmaker. Bartlesville Republican Representative Sean Roberts says he will challenge Lucas, who has been in the seat since 1994. Neva, should Lucas be concerned about Roberts running for his seat? Well, I think any incumbent office holder is always concerned about the, the, the next election and what it looks like in terms of is, is it a primary, is it a primary and a general um, and kind of who is out there announced or unannounced that may be, you know, that may ultimately be on the ballot. So, yes, I don't think Frank Lucas, who has who's been in the in Congress since 1994, has been on the ballot all of those times, is not going to take anything for granted. He's a skilled, proven a campaigner that doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't uh, uh, dismiss the fact that it's important to stay engaged with his constituents. And he has 32 of the 77 counties in our state in his congressional district. Uh, so the largest land mass, I mean, and and now with, uh, with some new parts of the district as a result of um, redistricting, but not nothing really new in the totality of the time he's been in office because he's had Oklahoma City, uh, parts of Oklahoma City, and as well as all the way up into the panhandle. So he knows the lay of the land. I think what you have in the instance of Sean Roberts, speculation all through session last year was he would run for something statewide. A lot of the secondary offices were talked about. Then he jumps into this uh, into this congressional race. But the bottom line is he's a term limited legislator uh, who, you know, kind of has has made his niche um, with with a certain segment of the Republican, you know, Republican voters. But he comes from a House seat uh, in a in Osage County. So the idea that that's an easy springboard into a congressional race, um, it, it's it's a heavy it's a heavy lift. And there's a lot of money uh, that you've got to raise to be competitive in any congressional race. And so it'll be interesting. Here's someone who can be in, who will be in the session uh, coming up, uh, uh, theoretically still come to work and do what he was elected to do and make the votes and, and be, be a legislator for the next uh, several months, and then be on the ballot potentially if he actually files uh, on June 28th for the uh, Republican congressional seat. Ryan. Well, you know, I, I would assume that uh, Representative Roberts is going to try to run to the right of Congressman Lucas. I mean, that that seems to be kind of the playbook that we see. And, and you know, Representative Roberts has, you know, certainly developed uh, a lot of, you know, very far right conservative bona fides during his time in the state legislature. But it is going to be a Herculean effort, uh, as Neva said, to be an effective member of the state legislature 
uh, and at the same time, raise the kind of money that you've got to raise to be competitive against a multi-decade long incumbent from Washington, D.C., who's going to be able to put together a pretty uh, tremendous war chest um, and who's not somebody who just got elected in 1994 and has been you know, gathering dust somewhere. I mean, uh, Congressman Lucas uh, is going to have an impressive resume of things that he has done for that district, you know, the, the, you know, what he's brought back, all of that. I mean, that's going to be what he's going to campaign on is his record. Now, I'm sure that Representative Roberts, you know, like many of the folks that are running to the right of these folks, uh, these Republican incumbents and primaries, they'll try to use that record against him. Uh, they'll try to use his length of service in office against him. The fact that he's been in Washington, D.C. all of this time, I'm sure that that will be kind of the general tenor of the campaign. Um, and it'll be interesting to see in that Republican primary uh, where Oklahoma voters are at. Uh, I think that Oklahoma voters are, you know, especially in that congressional district, uh, you know, very conservative. But uh, what we've seen in other polling where whether it's, you know, people running to the right of Senator Lankford, uh, you know, people talking about running to the right of Governor Stitt, the, the numbers just never really bear out. I mean, I think that they, they do really well on social media, uh, but that just doesn't translate into poll numbers and then ultimately into votes that get you elected on election day. Yeah, and Neva, the, uh, though most people might not know Frank Lucas if they're not in Congressional District 3, the people in Congressional District 3 know him. He is not a stranger to going out and talking to people throughout, although it's, again, the largest district in Oklahoma. He's not a stranger to going out and talking to his yeah, Absolutely. When, you've been, when you're in Congress, you have constituent services, you have field offices, you have a lot of direct contact with the folks that you're representing, as well as when you come back home and have town hall meetings and, and engage in a, multi, you know, in a multitude of ways on the official side. And then you have the campaign side where you engage, uh, you know, in the partisan fight of, you know, just uh, uh, making sure that the, the folks that can go to the polls and reelect you, uh, that they can go and make sure that you're the nominee again, uh, that you that you turn those folks out and you give them a reason. So, again, I think, it, um, you know, every every primary no one will take one for granted if they're wise because anything can happen. I mean, you have to get the folks out to vote. You have to, you have to go through that process and go through the election. But you, you've got a proven vote getter and you've got a proven um, person who's been reelected multiple times in this district. And I think, uh, again, voters have to have a very strong reason to turn out incumbents. And so um, in this instance, I think uh, it'll be it'll be fascinating to watch. It'll be interesting to see if any other candidates get in the race. That changes the dynamic as well. If you had multiple people in a primary, then you know it's a it's a whole different scenario in terms of what you have to do, the money you have to spend, the campaign you wage to make sure that you either avoid a runoff or or ultimately make sure you at least are the nominee running for reelection. Oklahoma City Mayor David Holt declines to take part in a debate against three challengers in the upcoming municipal election February 8th. Holt currently has a commanding lead in the polls at more than 60 percent. Ryan, should Holt still take part in a debate despite the lead? Oh, absolutely he should. I, you know, and I've, I've said on this program uh, and, and to Mayor Holt himself, he's got my vote. Uh, he, he, has, he has earned my vote, but that doesn't mean that I'm not incredibly disappointed in his decision to not attend and participate in this debate that's being hosted by non-doc media. Um, you've got, and I, I know that, uh, and I, I understand, you know, I've run for office and if you've got a lead, 
the only thing the only thing you can do in a debate is lose. Um, and he would be walking onto a debate stage where he would have three candidates, two running at him from the right and one running at him from the left. And they would all you know, put crosshairs directly on Mayor Holt. I mean, he would be under attack the entire debate. I get that. That's probably not comfortable. There's a political liability to doing that. It's not risk free. But Mayor Holt needs to be a leader in this instance. I mean, he is, um, you know, uh, the reason that he's uh, earned my vote and, and so many other votes, the reason that he's got 62% and or 66% approval rating uh, in, in some polls is because he's a, he's a smart, intelligent, thoughtful guy that even whenever I disagree with him, he's been able to defend his positions. Um, and he's been open uh, at some instances to changing his positions or reconsidering those positions. I think that he can do that on that debate stage. And I, um, you know, I think that it's, it's really important for him uh, if he believes that the, the messaging, in particular, the messaging coming from the two candidates to the right of him is so outrageous and so extreme that he doesn't want to dignify it. I think that the better way to do it is they're already on the ballot. They're, they're there, they're on that platform. Use your voice, use your platform to push back on that, to answer those questions. Um, and so I, I hope that he changes his mind. I'd love to see him on that debate stage. And uh, I think that the liability that he faces not uh, being there is a lot lower than what his campaign folks are advising him. Neva. Well, and I think what we saw in, in this first, quote, debate, I mean, that the that the mayor was not at is is exactly what you described, Ryan. I mean, you have three folks that are running hard against the mayor. I mean, and they are trying to tr trying to drive a wedge and they're trying to go for their what they see as their niche constituency with very um, underfunded campaigns compared to an incumbent sitting there with high approval ratings, as you as you said, and seven or eight hundred thousand dollars in the bank that he can spend between now and February the 8th. That's a lot of money uh, in a concentrated period of time, whatever amount of that he spends. But I think when you look at the fact that he is well positioned, I mean, by anybody's estimation, you would have to say he's the heavy favorite to win and that you have, uh, you know, you have two Republicans trying to make it a partisan race. Um, and trying to kind of wage uh, what, what's been described as a MAGA-style campaign. I mean, a very, you know, very much uh, anti the mayor, anti him being uh, someone who has, in their words, cozied up to, uh, to Joe Biden and, you know, and talking about the contrast. And then, on the, uh, and then the third candidate being a Democrat who uh, has taken the, the mayor on on the issues that he cares about that he doesn't think the mayor's done a good job on, you know, homelessness and other things. So you've got a lot of swirling, you know, topics out there, but you've got a very limited audience of people paying attention. I mean, these are elections that less than 10% of the people historically turn out. Um, and even if you even if you bump that up, by just having more campaign activity, a little more aggressive attempt to draw out, you know, people that you can identify and bring to the, you know, bring to the polls. Even at that, it's still, it's still a very daunting challenge to be able to overcome everything that we've just described. And I think the other thing is, um, if, if in fact we see a little bit of a change, I think in the potential voting pattern because you have you have a block of votes that are Canadian County, you know, Canadian County folks that live in the city of Oklahoma City within Canadian County. The same is true of a block of votes 
city of Oklahoma City residents living in Cleveland County. And it appears that, uh, you know, that in the instance of the two uh, two of the candidates that they've really concentrated their efforts trying to, you know, trying to develop a, a, um, uh, a, a pocket of votes that they can turn out in these areas. And these were areas that, uh, that the mayor were not necessarily his strongholds, but he's had across the board strong support across, you know, across the city at large as his vote totals have reflected. So um, we'll see what happens. And, you know, again, what we talk about is every election is important. We've seen elections where incumbents that everyone thought were safe got defeated because people just didn't turn out. They thought the guy had it in the bag or the woman had it in the bag. They didn't go to the polls. They knew there was only one thing to check, one box to check. And so if it's 20 degrees out and, and, uh, or snow on the ground, it's problematic, you know, so those are the things that we don't know. And those are the things that I'm sure leave, uh, um, you know, leave all of these campaigns and their supporters up at night wondering, you know, how do we, how do, how do we uh, make sure that we don't get, uh, you know, get a problem as a result of it. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.